cultures of assembly. Cultures of Assembly is a project for spaces of agonism and democracies in the making. It is generated by friction, negotiation and conflict, where the public sphere opens to new social and political practices. We engage in the discourse and spatial politics in the physical and the non-physical public spheres. We are Francis Kain, Maria Maric, Markus Missen, and Cesar Reyes. Today we are focusing on relational politics with Albena Yaneva. Episode number four. Well, Albena, thank you so much for accepting our invitation. We are honored to have you as a discussion companion today. Even if we are experiencing quite troubling times, um, we thought that maybe it would be more relevant than ever actually to have this discussion with you. Because indeed, as we speak, it has been almost a week that the war in Ukraine broke out. Talking about the notion of relational politics today resounds louder than ever, since people from the civil society are making collective decisions taking collective actions in reaction to the horrific and continuous change of the situations. As a first question, maybe I would like to ask, how do you think this uh, will impact our societies or actually is already impacting our societies when tackling this notion of relational politics? Yeah, that's a really good starting point indeed, because we cannot talk about politics without thinking what's unfolding at the moment and how this... Um, brings this together and uh, and pulls us apart exactly what relational politics is about. It's not politics with a capital P represented uh, by political parties, governments, um, any kind of official statements that we can produce in uh, political demonstrations or petitions or ideologies, any any kind, no, no, no embodied uh, kind of uh, nature of politics, uh, but politics uh, with a small p in terms of how relations are changing, how uh, relational groupings are changing, which is exactly what we uh, see at uh, the moment, how an issue, how a, a very a disturbing issue indeed um, divides people, pulls them apart, groups them and regroups them in unpredictable ways uh, in uh, different countries and in different uh, parts uh, of the world, uh, depending on their connectedness uh, to uh, this issue. That's exactly what we witness here, the unfolding of this relational uh, politics or the importance of political versus politics and any kind of embodiments of politics, which is uh, what we traditionally have in architecture and urban studies literature. I mean, there is also a question now that could come already. Maybe I'm jumping a bit. Let me know if you think this is too fast already. But then can we talk about your relation to context? So be it built or unbuilt. And how does this relationship affect also some kind of um, ethnographic narrative on architecture and urbanism for you? Yeah, that's a, uh, an interesting and a very important question indeed. So context uh, in my work, but I would say also in the pragmatist tradition is not something that is outside uh, 
the content of architecture or any kind of urban uh, urban uh, content um, sitting statically out there and capable of defining the content of urban processes or architectural uh, processes so a context in any uh, in no way can defy uh, this uh, content but it's rather something that should be explained should be defined as well uh, and it, it could be defined and explained if we follow ethnographically architectural or urban uh, process so when we are in the middle of an architectural design process or any kind of urban uh, process that we follow, an urban debate, a controversy, uh, very often we cannot distinguish between elements that find themselves entangled, deeply entangled, technological and symbolic elements, human and non-human elements, contextual and, and content uh, elements. So when we are in the middle of those processes, we can cannot distinguish mm -hmm. those uh, and, uh, entities and uh, therefore it's an artificial distinction to talk about uh, context and content if we follow processes if we follow how architectural and design uh, um, processes unfold we'll be able to capture contextual elements uh, and we, we will be able to capture how they um, impinge on design and how they change design we can witness contextual mutations rather than a static context social political or cultural context that is out there and it, that is capable of explaining as a kind of static framework um, what uh, happened inside uh, architecture and urban uh, design. So in other words, context is also to be explained, social, political, cultural factors uh, that we usually refer to in um, architectural uh, studies. We usually bring them uh, uh, to uh, explain architectural processes and architectural content. Uh, they are also to be explained. They're also to be understood. Uh, and uh, that's a common uh, mistake we have been we have been repeating in architectural studies uh, for decades, hoping that society can explain what happens uh, in architectural or urban uh, fields. And we know this, uh, we know the history of this trend, so to say, because up to the 80s, I would say uh, most of the kind of the, uh, the design theories we have uh, revolve around the aesthetic content of architecture, aesthetics, styles, uh, the big names, the big, um, the big creators. Uh, and in the 80s, we witness a number of works uh, related to society. We have the, the work of Thomas, um, the name escaped me now, but uh, uh, the buildings and society, all this kind of tradition around uh, uh, society, so, social context and social society is an important framework to explain architecture. Um, and uh, a number of other works, Adrian Forty and other historians follow on uh, on uh, this uh, tradition as well uh, in the attempt of explaining architecture with uh, social social development, social context and society. So society at that moment seems like this kind of field that will explain what happens in the field of architecture. But then 
architectural field has been going to this uh, tradition for uh, a long time and sociologists know better than architects that uh, uh, society also needs to be explained uh, and uh, we cannot look for uh, a source of explanation in society so we have to um, uh, uh, equally question social processes, political processes and cultural frameworks with the same scrutiny that we question architectural and urban uh, processes as those factors, those frameworks or those static contexts are not capable of explaining what happens in the field of architecture. But we can in a way understand why uh, this shift happens in the field um, from uh, this shift from uh, aesthetic and, and stylistic interpretations in architecture towards a shift to explain architectural content with uh, uh, social and political factors. This uh, happens um, naturally in the 80s due to the uh, political context that uh, we face and uh, therefore uh, meanwhile of course social science scientists uh, also have refined their thinking about society we don't talk about society any longer in social science but we talk about the social social associations a much more refined understanding of, about social link and social relationships uh, have uh, been uh, devised in the field of social sciences so architectural the architectural field has to keep up, so to say, with these new developments in the field of social sciences. We cannot rely any longer to this static concept of society that was there in the 80s and that architectural scholars uh, referred uh, to and stick to that uh, concept from uh, 40 years ago. Social sciences have evolved, political sciences, cultural anthropology has evolved, and we have to keep up with those developments and constantly refine our conceptual tools as well. Yes, right now that you mentioned about this, uh, let's say, uh, difference between the dynamics of the social systems and, and the tools and language that architecture has, I think that we architects have been trained very well in those static notions, but have very scarce uh, knowledge or even language to deal with, with incremental change and, and social dynamics. So I'm very, very curious about how this, uh, you also mentioned the notion of, of um, unpredictable alliances, you know, this uh, uh, set of relations that uh, other sciences uh, like sociology can't really grasp. Uh, how can we in some way learn from, from those um, uh, approaches and also, let's say, make our tools and our language uh, richer? Um, I think you have uh, experienced a lot on, let's say, grasping at this small politics, politics with, uh, you know, not with big P. And I'm really curious about um, these tools that you have in some way uh, grasp, uh, uh, develop and implementing. Yeah, um, it's, of course, it's one possible way of, of uh, developing uh, these tools. I mean, it doesn't have to start with the conceptual redefinitions. It could start from an empirical project and, and by closely following uh, the dynamics of a project, a new understanding of, of politics or social link uh, could be uh, devised. And uh, this is something I have done in, in, my, um, in my work on a number of occasions. 
of uh, following um, architecture in the making, urban processes in the making, uh, renovation in the making, um, or by always placing myself within uh, the heart of this process in one or another way. So this has been my strategy, but there are other strategies as well. Um, um, and I can come back to this question uh, as well. For me, um, it was uh, it all started uh, with a project literally uh, 20 years ago, more than 20 now, yeah, <laughs> 21 years ago, uh, when I had the chance uh, to work in the Office for Metropolitan Architecture as an anthropologist. Um, uh, following uh, a project uh, which was considered to be of high political importance for the designers at the time because it was a project in New York and uh, Kuhas uh, at the time and the whole team of OMA that had been uh, dreaming to design in delirious New York but this hasn't happened uh, this was uh, an opportunity for this to happen and this was the project for the extension of the Whitney Museum of American Art so that was the first uh, project I followed and of course I had different ways of following uh, this project and framing it in terms of big politics um, because it's New York because it's an important museum extension uh, the Whitney is a small museum designed in the 60s at the same time like um, the Guggenheim Museum. It's, um, Guggenheim is 19, 1967 and the, the Whitney was completed in 1966, so it's the same kind of generation of small landmarks in uh, Manhattan in the Upper East Side historical district, so there's a lot of politics in this district, very, a lot of local politics. Uh, the project, the um, uh, extension was commissioned to uh, OMA in 2001, shortly before 9-11, uh, and then a big political upheaval, a lot of uh, political uh, factors that had an impact on the project. So a wonderful case to be interpreted in terms of big politics and in terms of political factors and how they have an impact on uh, this uh, design uh, project, uh, but I rather decided to do something different, to stay in OMA and to follow how this project unfolds there and what are all these kind of, how this, all these kind of factors that come from outside, uh, ranging from big politics, uh, uh, ter ter the terrorist attack to ma the mayoral politic in uh, New York um, had an impact um, in some of the design decisions, but also how many other factors were part of this uh, process, including the local history of the museum, because I discovered when I started following more closely the different design decisions, I uh, discovered that this is a museum uh, that many architects have been trying to extend uh, since the 80s. So it was built in the 60s, then in the 80s there was a big controversy uh, with Michael Graves suggesting three different extensions, all very politically debated. Uh, extremely controversial, uh, a decade of attempts to extend the same museum and all these attempts failed. So one of the biggest aesthetic battles in America, in, in the galaxy of American architecture and all projects failed. And then 20 years later, the same project comes in the Office of Metropolitan Architecture. So all these shifts into local politics, all this kind of very specific trajectory of the 
design object that is in the hand of the architects of OMA were extremely important for, to me to follow and to see how they will have an impact on the design moves, on the different design decisions and the design approach together with all the, these other uh, factors like site specificity, the density um, of the uh, local site, uh, the local politics uh, on Madison Avenue, the eclectic streetscape and uh, the zoning envelope regulations, all these kind of other factors that are there. And it's a mixture of cultural, technical, political and designerly concerns that are all there unfolding and that we can only fully unpack if we are uh, placed in the heart of this uh, process. I don't know if this answers entirely your question. No, it's interesting Interesting how design in some way can help us to reinvent and find these sites of political action, no? And going beyond them, uh, let's say, mere uh, uh, giving us uh, powerful metaphors. I, I think this open up that possibility and uh, this uh, methodological approach that you somehow envision with that let's say an iconic um, a project in this case, no? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, which can be interpreted in terms of iconic uh, architecture, which can be interpreted in terms of styles as well, because we have mm -hmm. the, the Whitney building is um, you know, designed in the very famous modernist style, uh, um, international style of, um, of Breuer. Breuer is a Bauhaus, Bauhaus-trained architect, Marcel Breuer. Bauhaus-trained architect, international style. So we have a modernist icon in our hands. And then 20 years later, we have Michael Graves uh, with three postmodernist extensions. So we have the uh, kind of the peak of the postmodernist style. And then 20 years later, we have Kuhas with a hyper, hyper ultra modernist style, we might say. So we can read the entire history of modern architecture within this building and, and build a story of successive stylistic uh, solutions or, or, or uh, again go, come back to this kind of very uh, specific uh, narrative of um, architecture as uh, aesthetic solutions as tiles as movements uh, and uh, compare these three uh, different um, uh, solutions in these three uh, different moments of time or trace the history of the museum from Bauhaus to Kuhas, that that will, would have been another option. And it is not what I decided to do. Um, it was more unpacking those processes. And as you said, uh, looking for um, sites of political action that are not conventionally uh, treated as uh, political, that are not conventionally named as uh, in political uh, terms, sites of contestation, sites of, of design struggles, we might say where the uh, different kind of uh, notions of political actions uh, uh, are performed, so to say. Maybe maybe a, a question on the on the method, let's say the ethnographic method that you were talking about. It, I think, I mean, you're describing that kind of ethnographic turn, ethnographic shift in doing architectural research as well, that could also be kind of traced historically from 80s on. And um, this also um, kind of leads me and reminds me of the book of uh, Bruno Latour, Laboratory Life, where he kind of talks about this, let's say, fake distinction between social and the technical in the science. And I particularly like how he uses almost the metaphor of a, br a brown lunch bag in the laboratory that he 
you know, analyzes, uh, kind of puts it in the same level as surgical tables and chemicals the scientists use practically, like this kind of pieces of puzzle really that makes, you know, in the end scientific research. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit more on what, what does it mean to be an ethnographer of architectural office? What are the tools? What are the practices? What are the processes that you as a researcher actually kind of in positions that you as a researcher take in this process of investigation? So, for example, just to kind of come back again to, to Latour's work, he talks about, I think, literary inscription in his book, kind of occupying this ambiguous position of being both insider and outsider at the same time. So I wonder if you could maybe just tell us a little bit more about this, let's say, relationality, the position that you as an ethnographer occupy in this process and what, what does it entail? Uh, thank you. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question and I can talk for hours on this question because I have done 20, 20 years of ethnography yeah, on different projects and, and I have constantly reflected on uh, my role as a, as a researcher um, and more recently um, uh, of the impossibility to do a real-life ethnography due to the digital uh, modes of communication that we all had to experience in the past two years. and. Uh, uh, this kind of different type of ethnography. So that's a constant, uh, constant uh, reflection uh, indeed. Um, maybe I uh, could start with um, one uh, particular aspect of it. Um, being uh, doing an ethnography at the start is extremely is extremely challenging because no one understands what exactly you're doing. Uh, and uh, again, going back to my very first project, um, I uh, was often um, misunderstood by designers because they were not used to that kind of presence to a researcher coming to the practice uh, of uh, one of the uh, best architects. Uh, and staying longer than a day, yeah, because usually you would have an architectural journalist or an architectural historian or critic visiting the practice, only being interested in the star architect, doing one interview with the star architect and going back home to write an article uh, or a, a short um, visit might include one day staying in the practice for a day, but not uh, longer. So um, an ethnography of design requires a much longer visit than this quick visit that uh, usually uh, architectural journalists or architectural critics would uh, pay to a practice, being only interested in the key architect, in the star architect, and going back and writing a piece that will be based only on this very short visit uh, and perhaps very quickly connected dots between uh, the interview, what they have seen in practice, and some theoretical and contextual information about projects or about the practice itself. Um, the ethnographic study, uh, or uh, the slow ethnographer, as I uh, call uh, this type of research, requires a different type of epistemic engagement with the practice and therefore staying uh, longer and engaging closely uh, with different processes in this practice without necessarily paying attention to the star architect or the key uh, person uh, leading uh, this uh, uh, practice. 
um, and paying attention to all those who are actively involved in the design uh, process. Uh, being involved in many different uh, processes, uh, in many different rhythms, sometimes these rhythms are quite confusing, they're quite quick, you cannot uh, capture everything that's going around, especially in the first days of an ethnography. Everything is new, everything is dazzling, everything is hectic, uh, and it's a very uh, nice and, and um, hectic start of a research process uh, and uh, it takes uh, longer and the researcher doing ethnography has to be prepared for this longer stay, sometimes months, sometimes uh, years of patient observation, of, um, of participation in many different processes, not just uh, semi-structured interviews, not just formal situation of interviewing uh, the actors on the ground, but also informal chats, informal conversations, um, and participation in many different activities that unfold in the practice so that you can fully capture the culture of this practice because ethnography is about understanding the culture, ethnography, uh, describing, writing about uh, this uh, culture. And for me, it was all about uh, writing and describing the culture of designing architects uh, from this very first project in the OMA uh, through to many other uh, projects when I was on the ground and following uh, architects at work in different contexts, not necessarily in the office, but also outside uh, the design office, in construction processes, in um, uh, design competitions as well, so in different uh, in different uh, uh, situations. Uh, so, um, uh, as you rightly pointed in your question, um, it's um, ethnography is um, very often about recalibrating this different this distance uh, to the process of observation and to uh, the people we observe and whose culture we try uh, to understand. Uh, taking the right decisions in different moments of these processes, because sometimes it's very hectic, uh, sometimes it's slow and nothing happens for months, and suddenly uh, a lot happens in a week. And knowing to capture these intensive moments, um, because it's not just about duration, but it's about intensity, um, knowing to capture, record and analyze uh, those moments as well, because ethnography is not just a passive, relaxed observation of those processes. It's an active uh, research um, process of observing, recording and interpreting at the same time. It's not step by step observing, recording, interpreting. It's observing, recording and interpreting as three uh, simultaneous operations, and in that, in that sense, it's analytically demanding um, as um, an intellectual uh, an intellectual operation. Um, it also requires um, following uh, the um, this important objects, technologies, and inscriptions. Um, in the practice of uh, practitioners uh, that are important for them and uh, the significant attachments for architects in their practice and trying to understand why they matter to their design practice and why uh, it, it's important uh, uh, for uh, uh, their uh, practice. 
rather than imposing my own definitions on what is important to understand in the practice or my terminology, uh, trying to, it's about trying to understand their language, their infra language, uh, the way they understand the world, and uh, then taking this into the ethnographic descriptions to fully produce an account or a thick description of uh, those practices uh, that will, um, in a way, uh, describe uh, those processes in a way that architects want to be uh, described rather than a sociologist would describe them with artificial concepts and terms that they would not recognize. Mm -hmm. But uh, a language, using a language that is realistic, that gives justice to this complexity, uh, and that takes also producing a narrative that takes also the reader into the heart of the action uh, is also very important as every ethnographic account, every book and article written on the basis of ethnography um, has to be written a little bit like a novel uh, because it has to uh, take the reader into the heart of this action and tell us who does what and how and brings this specificity and this uh, dense texture of detail so that we can fully understand uh, what happens in design processes. This is fascinating. Thank you so much. So practically what, what we kind of see in this, let's say, shift from, from we see in a way, first we shift, the, the, uh, we see a shift between from project to in a way what Anat Singh described as project making, right? So project is a kind of dynamic set of relationships which are, you know, in the making, not fixed. And also from what you describes as a, describe as a shift from uh, from objects or products to practices. On one side, as you talk, we see a shift in a position of the researcher, but I think we also see in a way a shift of um, I mean, as you as you also talk about this, a shift of interest in architectural practices more broadly. This kind of loosely leads me to to think of the work of Peggy Deemer and architectural lobby on one side, then also. Uh, the exhibition at the CCA, the other architect on the other side. And let's say a kind of uh, an attempt to really position architectural practice also not something as not something that is necessarily just given, but also something that could be designed and redesigned and also worked upon. So um, I wonder what are, in your opinion, when we talk about the roles, right? I mean, we talked about the roles of, of researcher. Uh, what are, in your opinion, let's say, the kind of future hybrid roles architects could and should occupy in a way? So how, how does, for example, this discussion on practice also kind of bridges us to the question of roles of, of architects in a way and roles of researchers that you kind of talked about? Yeah, well, that's a big question in this. Uh, there's a number of questions <laughs> indeed there. Um, if we go back to the 80s, when I was talking about this shift that we witnessed in the 80s, uh, that goes in architectural theory and history, that goes from um, architecture's aesthetic styles and movements towards architecture and society with the work of Thomas Marcus, I remember the name, Thomas Marcus, Buildings and Power, which is an iconic book at the time, and then a lot of historians follow on uh, the step uh, of these uh, thinkers, Adrian Forty and others, just as we have this kind of uh, interesting moment in the 80s, uh, uh, in parallel in the 80s, we have this shift from um, 
the interest in products towards the interest in uh, practice or the process of design and design pedagogy. And here um, we have authors like uh, Donald Chon and the famous uh, studies he did in uh, the 80s starting from the 70s, some of the publications, but uh, culminating with a number of important uh, publications on the reflexive uh, practitioners, um, designers as reflective practitioners in the 80s, um, which is, I would say, the first moment uh, in architectural research where we see uh, ethnography as a method uh, in the hands of an architectural researcher like Sean, uh, mainly in pedagogical context, yeah, because he's more interested in how architects uh, think, but architects in a pedagogical, in an educational context, and he follows uh, students and and uh, and coaches in design studio in MIT in the 80s. So that's the first ethnographic observations that we see. Uh, and at that moment, this shift um, uh, from product to process becomes very significant with Dana Kaff uh, uh, following uh, on the steps of Sean. And um, uh, in uh, the 80s, uh, she did a number of ethnographic observations in uh, American practices, mainly in the San Francisco uh, Bay Area. And uh, this resulted in the publication of Architecture, the Story of Practice in uh, 1992, a significant uh, moment uh, for architectural scholarship because it's the very first study of architects at work, of architects uh, practicing uh, and, uh, and, and uh, performing the craft of design uh, rather than talking about their products and, and uh, uh, styles and movements and big uh, names. And then from that moment onward, uh, a number of ethnographic studies um, followed, but uh, covering other geographic areas, not just uh, uh, North America, but also spreading to Europe, Japan, and other other uh, contexts. Um, and um, I would say um, my work uh, is uh, in this tradition, uh, but uh, perhaps the first uh, study that uses mainly um, uh, methods inspired by technosciences uh, and not that much social constructivist methodologies, which is what Donna Kaff and, uh, and the first um, uh, theorists in architecture have done, but my focus is mainly uh, on um, uh, oh, the participation of non-humans and architectural models and software and all this kind of visuals that architects share their agency with. So my attention is more on this kind of distributed agency between human and non-human participants in design rather than an understanding of architecture as a social construction, as something that can be only negotiated between a number of uh, social uh, actors. Uh, uh, to, of course, uh, reach the moment uh, that you were talking about with uh, Peggy Dimmer, with the CCI exhibit, where we see more and more attention given to practice, uh, to architects as workers within Peggy Dimmer's uh, um, uh, terms or the kind of the nature of the architectural labor where we're going into a kind of more um, political um, e economy kind of treatment of the concept of architectural work. So we have all this kind of uh, very quickly, of course, traced uh, trajectory of uh, the interest we have in architectural uh, practice 
So where we stand as researchers, of course, we cannot all embrace that uh, position, but having more interest into unpacking what's behind the work of the architect, what kind of processes unfold there, what kind of decisions are to be taken there rather than black boxing the practice of architecture is something that we should uh, bear in mind, no matter what tradition we come from, uh, whether it's political economy of architecture uh, with uh, Peggy uh, Gamer, uh, Dima or other uh, traditions of social constructivism or pragmatist understandings of practice, no matter what kind of tradition we embrace, I think we will uh, have this awareness now about uh, the complexity of architectural practice rather than uh, entirely uh, bracketing uh, practice. Thank you so much. I mean, what 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 just one a quick comment it's not a question i mean for me what what ties uh, this kind of debate together is also in a way a kind of a self-reflectivity of architectural profession right whether we kind of approach it through ethnography or whether we as architectural lobby in a way positions look also at ourselves as workers right as a kind of almost like a self-consciousness of architectural profession as a particular social class or professional class so i think this was for me interesting, actually, this kind of um, kind of self-reflecting moment of architecture as a discipline as well. If you want to reflect, of course, go ahead. But otherwise, I can maybe ask Cesar to, to continue. I just wanted to add a quick comment. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, that's very important. And that's why there's more and more interest in these approaches, because there's a growing reflexivity within uh, the uh, architectural uh, community about the social complexity of the of the uh, of the production of architecture about this collective aspect the collaborations the collective aspect of architecture uh, making and this reflexivity is growing in particular uh, today uh, due to a number of technological and political developments that we see in practice as well which bring us to reflect even more uh, about uh, our practice yeah it's really fascinating and it's related with your re reflection uh, and also your question, Maria. Uh, it, this uh, space of opportunity that it's between, you know, the objects and the act of, of, of making architecture is a totally new space. It somehow also uh, brings to my mind that idea posed by Keller Easterling in, in Medium Design about not considering objects and ideas as something totally isolated, but uh, let's say, thinking or asking what happens in between them. It's really interesting that uh, field of possibility, which also connects with that anthropological approach to architecture that uh, somehow denies of this uh, sense of urgency and given solutions, but uh, demands another, a different approach, an immersive approach that also requires slowness and some kind of, uh, I don't know if that's part of methodological uh, approaching an anthropological uh, position, also an emotional bond to where you're acting. I'm very curious about this, especially, you know, in in the light of recent events and after the pandemics, for instance, how this new set of choreographies that we are obliged to learn on the go has also influenced or affect the act of, of, of designing and making architecture. I think we still don't know yet what's happening. We are still learning those choreographies. And I really find fascinating how this anthropological approach can give us architects part of these tools or languages for 
start approaching in a, let's say, more emotional way to the act of designing. I don't know if you have some thoughts about this. Yeah, that's a very important uh, question indeed. Uh, well, it um, it kind, kind of comes back to a question we discussed before about the distance we have from the object and how we calibrate this, this recalibrate this distance. Uh, when we interview an architect um, about a project or about a design idea after the fact, they tell you all about the idea, but not about the object, right? They forgot all about the object, or about the kind of instruments and the materials that help them to get to that idea. They only talk about this idea and then they will place this idea into these larger frameworks that we talked about. Uh, historical context, cultural, the cultural zeitgeist, or, or they'll explain it with their own inspirations from inspirations from uh, they got from their childhood or from other architects. So you will have this kind of explanation of this idea uh, 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 through the lenses, through many different lenses. But when you follow an architect working on this idea, then you witness a completely different entanglement between object and idea, which is what uh, Keller is, is talking about. And she's, she is also calling this active form because the form is actively transformed and it's also acting on us as designers. So there's this kind of active dialogue, which we can only understand, capture and interpret if we are there, if we are in the middle of this action, if we can witness it either as researchers observing designers at work, which I have done for years, or as reflective practitioners, which is what uh, Maria was talking about, this kind of reflexivity, growing reflexivity and growing um, kind of awareness uh, about what we do and how we do it, could also result in a description that fully accounts this dialogue, active dialogue between form and idea or the shaping of the idea through the transforming uh, materials, softwares, the recalcitrant model or the codes in a software that is acting on us. So this kind of dialogue of materials and shapes. Um, how we uh, produce a description of this, how we take into account the knowledge that we gain in this situation of actively accounting uh, the interaction between humans and non-humans uh, is, of course, our choice as researchers or as uh, practitioners, what we make out of it. Uh, but I think it's extremely, extremely important that we take into account rather than completely ignore the this objective layer, this active form uh, in architectural processes, and then we strip it entirely and we reduce it to ideas or concepts uh, without taking into account this material uh, dimension, which is what design is about today. And uh, this brings me to, to your other question, which is very important of how do we account this complexity, this dialogue of humans and non-humans uh, in a moment when uh, we cannot actually witness those processes in the global pandemic with uh, all these kind of virtual modes of, of interactions and, and um, Zoom communication that, of course, this becomes much more uh, uh, difficult uh, to witness. And I uh, recently did um, a small project with uh, practitioners during the pandemic called Architecture After COVID, uh, where I interviewed 130 practices 
uh, but through a distant uh, ethnogra ethnographic approach, uh, either Zoom or a questionnaire that tries to capture ethnographically a layer of the practice or just a situation of the practice. This was quite an interesting experiment for myself, for me uh, also as a researcher. Uh, because I was not able to be there in uh, person in 130 practices from all over the world, across four continents, and do ethnography myself. To be able to witness precisely what you're talking about, this active dialogue of materials and shapes, the architect discussing with the model and the model talking back to an architect, this is not something you witness from a Zoom screen. Um, and uh, so I was thinking about the different form of ethnography, which I call distant ethnography, and I asked practices to describe one situation in uh, their practice, one moment uh, when they had to devise um, an alternative kind of solution. Uh, they had to make an adjustment in their practice. They had to come up with a new innovation, with a, a kind of um, adaptation in their practice uh, to help them to survive and to continue to work in the pandemic conditions. And I had amen amazing replies from uh, different practices. Uh, which talk about uh, new, introducing new technologies, reinventing ways of uh, communicating with uh, their um, collaborators, or even uh, producing their own surrogates, so that someone who replaces the architect and goes see communities because the architect cannot be there in person and this person has to play the role of an architect and the architect will be the stage director directing a very strange play from a distance, all these kind of incredibly resourceful solutions that architect had to design uh, during uh, the pandemic in order to be able to continue to design and do uh, their job as architects. So uh, this was a kind of compromise to ethnography, but cannot fully replace ethnography. This cannot fully replace uh, me being there and actually witnessing on the ground what happens and how architects cope uh, and continue uh, to perfect uh, their art of designers during the pandemic. And inevitably, the pandemic has triggered a lot of creativity, a lot of new solutions, uh, lots of new intra-digital developments, I would say. We cannot talk about a new digital turn or anything like this, but a lot of technologies and tools for instance, that were developed during the first and the second digital turn, but were not fully implemented in practices. And we're talking about different practices from different parts of the world, from Amman to Los Angeles, uh, and different scale practices. Um, they could not implement the digital tools, and this happened now during the pandemic. So uh, technologies like BIM, from the second digital turn, so we're talking about 2000, they started using them now. So 20 years later, all, the, all this kind of belated technological developments, which of course makes us question if we look at the tools with the tools of ethnography uh, and we see this kind of microscopic changes in practice on the ground, then we go back to architectural history and we start questioning developments like the digital turns even. So maybe the digital turns only happened in official historiography and maybe only in uh, Western and um, Western European kind of uh, intellectual circles and in the East Coast of America. 
but nowhere else. What happened in other practices around the world and how their practice was impacted on the technological developments that were officially termed as digital turns uh, is another story. And this is a story that we can only capture if we are there on the ground and we talk with practices and we witness uh, what uh, they, uh, their work involves, what kind of technologies, what kind of processes and actors. Yeah, just to close with also this experience that you mentioned, what was your, let's say, your experience with this ethnographic approach through Zoom and meetings and without the possibility to grasp the atmosphere, the complexities of face-to-face -face interaction with, you know, things that happen, blurry backgrounds, only be able to have very short eye contact. I'm, I'm really curious how you uh, stress your um, methodologies as a ethnographer and if you can uh, grasp one lesson or something that can can be taken because definitely we, we will keep using them and as architects also as well we also intend to get in immersed in different realities we will need this kind of uh, digital setup so uh, what about your experience yeah uh, with with the zoom ethnography you mean or with the real life or both I'm really curious about the Zoom ethnography. Real life, it's really, it's clear, let's say, but with the Zoom, which is here. Right, yeah, although, yeah, it's not always evident in, in real life ethnography as well. Yeah, well, there's one common feature between the two is, um, and I say this to my students all the time, don't try to be intelligent as a researcher. In ethnography, you don't have to be intelligent. You have to ask simple questions, naive questions, even if they think you're not very clever. You're not there to be um, uh, the clever researcher, but to get a clever information, to make them clever, to make them feel comfortable and predisposed to tell you all about their work without using any kind of jargon language, without using either professional jargon or the jargon of uh, the architectural researchers, researcher coming there and using a number of terms that we all share here in this room, mm -hmm. but which is not shared by professionals on a daily basis. Um, so that's wrong, imposing one type of jargon, one type of vocabulary, kind of conceptual vocabulary, on the actors we interview, either in real or in virtual context, is not good. Uh, asking the right questions, simple, open question, uh, questions uh, without being afraid to be uh, naive is another thing. Uh, and uh, in virtual ethnography in particular, being ba very patient is extremely important and trying to find the right, um, the right setup. Uh, so for instance, my very first, um, in um, very first uh, kind of pilot um, stage of interviews were with um, um, Italian practices during the lockdown in Italy, the, the first lockdown in um, March, uh, April uh, 2020. Uh, at that stage, uh, I did a number of questionnaires because the questionnaire was a way to approach practices because maybe not all of them want to be 
right away on the Zoom. Some of them were working from their cellars, from the attics, because every, everyone was on lockdown. They had quickly to transform uh, their homes into architecture offices to be able to continue to do some work on ongoing projects. Uh, so I decided the best way to approach uh, architects at that time was with a questionnaire and then ask them a number of questions about what's going on in their practices at the moment. And then I, I received 23 uh, questions uh, and I have selected five, six practices uh, that I will then go and interview by Zoom. And the Zoom interview was um, just a Zoom visit in the practice, which starts with an open series of questions about uh, the practice in the current conditions of lockdown, and if possible, a virtual tour of the premises of the practice. In some cases, they will show me the office with a, a small number of architects working with masks and I can see the office and what's going on in the practice. In other cases, their homes because they were working from home. And this virtual tour still gives you access to the spaces, to some of the instruments and the kind of a shared practices that are used in the office, although it's not a full access, it's not the same as you sitting in this space and being able, able to fully stroll, to engage in informal conversations and witness with your eyes things that are happening in uh, the practice rather than being shown what happens um, by the person guiding this interview through the Zoom. So that there's much more selectiveness and much more limitations, obviously, in a situation of Zoom visit, virtual visit or Zoom uh, practice interview with the professional architects. Yeah. This is very interesting what you're uh, now saying. And this gives me the sensation somehow, Albina, that the ethnographer becomes a kind of bridge builder, a facilitator. I explain myself. We often understand um, architecture, urban design's relation to politics as mirrored by ideologies, governmental policies, somehow guided by this traditional idea of the form of the city, which sometimes constitutes even the trauma of the city, if I may say. And then we ask ourselves, how do we place the architect in the discipline between civil society and governance? And somehow with what you're saying, does that mean that the architect needs an ethnographer with them if they aren't able themselves to build these bridges somehow? <laughs> well, it could certainly help. Yeah, it will help perhaps being open to this approach first, because not every architect is open to this. I have seen so many doors being closed in front of me over the past 20 years, even of architects that are not afraid of public scrutiny. Uh, architects who are kind of very much into the public uh, eye, um, but not everyone will, will open the door of their practice so an ethnographer can look around and can um, look at the behind the scenes of the practice and decide to write about this. This, this is a risk yeah, for practitioners and those who decide to do it are very brave. Yeah, Would you open as a researcher? Would you open the door of your office so that someone can follow you, how you work, what kind of books you read, how you take notes, how you write, how you produce your first drafts? Do you want to show your first drafts of your papers? This is a very risky business and that's why I have a lot of admiration to architects who open their doors 
for anthropologists, for ethnographers, and are happy uh, to share this the behind the scenes processes of architectural uh, production. Um, uh, that's a risk, however, if they decide to take uh, could pay off, as you were saying, uh, because uh, this could bring us back to uh, closer to researchers and to communities who want to understand better our practice. So if the architectural practice is better understood, this will, of course, means uh, much more connections, much more bridges between architectural professionals and uh, decision makers, between architects and communities, between architects uh, and, uh, and uh, city planners. And of course, uh, this will facilitate uh, negotiations and discussions in the future, uh, which might have wider political uh, reach. Uh, so in that sense, I think it's an important, um, an important and risky, of course, uh, thing uh, to do for reasons, but it could pay off both for architectural professionals and decision makers. Maybe I can just uh, add upon what Francelle was was the, the question she asked previously, um, and kind of maybe try to to make a connection also with with my PhD research. I don't know if this is the right place for for this, but maybe just a short in, uh, insert from this. Uh, when Priscilla, when you were talking about the mediator, right, between kind of architects and the civil society, what I found very interesting, for example, in my research, I was uh, conducting research on um, the role of media strategists and particularly real estate branding strategists in the kind of mediation, design and globalization of large scale urban projects. And I also did uh, interviews with uh, branding agencies that kind of claim really their specialization in real estate branding and real estate storytelling. And for example, what I found very fascinating was how all of these uh, uh, stakeholders actually saw themselves, all of these interviewees saw themselves as a kind of mediator, as a kind of common ground, a fluid, you know, common ground between all the stakeholders who are involved in the project making. As somebody who would act as a glue between architects on one side civil society developers on the third side, then local politicians and municipalities, etc. So just apropos to what Francel was asking, I think when, when we talk about ethnographer and anthropologist in art, you know, somebody who actually has this insider but also distant position and is able to see actually how architectural practice evolves and how it collaborates or doesn't collaborate with all the other stakeholders around the project. I think it becomes very important to really think who are these mediators, whether we kind of offload this very important role to a kind of um, a commercial, you know, position of a real estate branding strategist who, who you know, who are driven by kind of, you know, uh, incentives of selling the project of, you know, marketizing project to the real estate market. Or do we think of another more political you know, possibility of another more political role of a mediator. And I think this is also where the insights that you share with us, you know, as an ethnographer in architecture, I think become very, very important, right? They kind of almost open up and offer this other, you know, possibility of mediation in a way beyond the one that we are having right now, I think as a kind of 
reality of architecture or rather real estate as, as we kind of know it so yeah yeah that's very important extremely important uh, aspect indeed yeah yeah and also very difficult position to maintain as mediators it's a, like constantly being on the borders like walking on a rope without trying not to fall down on any of the sides because you cannot take a position yeah because as a researcher you cannot uh, take uh, sides, uh, clear sides uh, in uh, this uh, sometimes complex uh, processes, especially in the case of urban, in situations of urban debates and controversies, like highly politicized uh, projects, which I followed with the London Olympics, for instance, when I did the mapping controversies project, and then later on with Birmingham uh, train station, the, um, uh, the Newgate project was, was also an extremely controversial uh, political with big P uh, uh, project uh, describing uh, processes, accounting uh, uh, in details and negotiations and the positions of a number of other actors by maintaining this mediating position, as you say, is extremely important um, uh, uh, and uh, also tricky because you have to pay, uh, to pay uh, attention uh, to every single word, to every single uh, research decision you take in in this uh, uh, process uh, without ever uh, taking a site. Uh, but what is important here, especially in ethnographic accounts, uh, which are usually descriptive, which are usually, which usually provide a lot of detail so that we can understand the complexity of those uh, processes, uh, urban debates or controversies, uh, is uh, that by describing closely, by following closely and provi providing this texture of uh, details, we're already intruding in this world. We're not transforming them entirely, but it's the beginning. Yeah, we're already making a difference, so to say, because we are triggering some small uh, dif differences uh, in the process of re uh, describing those practices, redescribing those processes, not by translating them to our uh, conceptual uh, language, but redescribing them with the language of the actors and accounting for this complexity is already a way of intruding, interfering in uh, the world of uh, those actors. And that's how we make a difference as researchers. I have maybe a very naive question, but how do we as i mean i can talk only for myself as a, an architect a newly researcher in architecture how do we keep this mediating position you were talking about when it becomes even harder to keep it you know and especially you were talking about london when we look at the rise of privatization of public space for instance how can we engage and fight against powers of, in this case, neoliberal um, political economy? How do we engage somehow when we're against what we could call like a gigantic monster? Like, does that mean in the end that we are talking about all these things, but we are just facing an aporia? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a difficult one uh, as well. Um, but I would say not in a militant or activist, openly activist position, although we uh, might feel like, yeah, that's the right thing to do. We have to be there as an active as activists. As researchers, we have to restrain ourselves to take this militant, uh, uh, blatantly uh, 
political militant position as activists uh, but i would say we had uh, we have other ways of doing this which are much more powerful than activism or political protest uh, and this is the choices we make the choices we make uh, to cover aspects that are not covered to disclose aspects that were never touched and disclosed before to question a number of actors that are usually silent actors uh, or whose voice is never heard in the story to make them vocal to make them present to make them prominent and this this kind of set this set of decisions we take as researchers will uh, help uh, uh, these uh, processes uh, to become more fair uh, uh, rather than us taking a position that will be openly uh, political. And I would say uh, the research choices uh, we made to make um, visible, invisible processes, uh, to give voice to um, silent actors could be much more powerful than the classic political solutions that uh, other citizens could take. You just listened to the fourth episode of Cultures of Assembly, a podcast and research trajectory of the new chair of urban regeneration at the University of Luxembourg. We would like to thank our guest, Albina Yaneva. This podcast series is a collective work at the chair of urban regeneration we produce immersive research by exploring site-specific materials alongside publics and their narratives. We also share experiences by engaging into conversations with international researchers, artists, curators, politicians, economists and activists. The soundtrack was made by Ugne and Maria. Thank you for listening. And stay alert.